Law, Policy, and Markets. I'm super grateful that my parents were able to get me on this journey and allow me to find this beautiful thing that I can connect with that helps me in my professional life. It provides comfort, not just to me, but to others. And it's been, it's been a fantastic journey that will stay with me for the rest of my life. Welcome to Millbank Conversations. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I'm joined by Alex Romain, a partner in Milbank's litigation and arbitration group based in Los Angeles. Let's get to it. To be an amateur literally means to be a lover of something. For many legal professionals who are also amateur musicians, that passion and hours of music practice inform how they practice law and, more deeply, how their character is formed and expressed professionally. At Millbank, we have a surprising number of lawyer musicians. My partners, Jacqueline Chan in Singapore and Joel Harrison in London, are dedicated pianists, as is our retired partner, Warren Cook, in New York. So am I. The newest member of the club is Alex Romaine, a trial lawyer in Millbank's L.A. office. Join me now as Alex and I talk about law and music and values and how, for us, they are all connected. Well, Alex, thank you very much for taking the time to do this today. It's a real pleasure. We're both pianists, so I thought it might be interesting to explore together, from your perspective, how music, the the performance of music, the practice of music has informed the way that you practice law. Now, your practice in litigation focuses on complex commercial cases, white-collar defense. What are some of the cases you worked on? And that might be a good, kind of a good launching point to ex- explore that, that interface between your, I'm going to call it your heart, your music, and your mind, your law. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thank you. I think just at the outset, I should say that I've discovered over the years that there's a little bit of heart and a little bit of mind in every persuasive endeavor. And I think that that is the theme that runs through both music and the law. And so we'll talk about that in a minute. But yes, I've been a trial lawyer and litigator for 21 years now. And I've represented a number of individuals and corporations in high stakes matters, including as being one of the trial counsel for the late Senator Ted Stevens in his trial in Washington, D.C., where he was ultimately exonerated for all the charges that were brought against him. I represented the former chair and CEO of Fannie Mae in connection with a years-long accounting fraud allegation uh, that incorporated and included any number of different things in SEC investigation and derivative litigation, ERISA litigation, securities litigation. And so I've had lots of great experiences over the years, and I have to acknowledge that I really love what it is that I do as a trial lawyer. It's fantastic. I suspect that doing something every day for hours at end that you love doing has got to be relevant to how good you get at it. You know, that's true. And what's interesting is you need to have the practice, right? And so I play the piano and practice is one of the things that 
distinguishes those who begin with piano lessons and those who keep it up for life uh, and those who start and then just and just move on. And one of the things about the piano is one example is that I just loved to practice. And so before I met my wife, I had bought myself a grand piano of Boston and I had it in my studio apartment and I would work during the day and I'd come back home and I'd be sort of practicing for these competitions and I would be happy to practice four or five hours and for me it was perfectly fine to be able to sit there on one phrase or one passage and simply practice go slowly first and then proceed to develop the technique to work it through I think in the law it is the same thing I had a case one of my favorite cases it was a case I had a consumer class action was in Dallas and we had to prepare for a series of depositions. We were defending depositions and our schedule was truly a very difficult schedule. We would find out on a Friday who it is we would, the 10 potential depositions we'd have to defend a week from the following Monday. And then we'd have to reach out to people, meet with them, prep them, defend them. And then the following week, so we'd have one week to do that, 10 individuals. And then the week after that, we would have to start defending these depositions, morning and afternoon. They'd last about half a day. And it was interesting because it goes specifically to the point you're talking about. By the time I had defended about 100 depositions, I felt like I really understood and appreciated the skills required to make that happen. And it was unique because you don't often get an opportunity to focus that much on one particular skill set. And there are lots of skill sets you need to bring to the table as a lawyer, obviously as a deal lawyer and also as a trial lawyer. But yes, practice will ultimately make perfect. Yeah, or perfect pitch. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So, so let me ask, though, I mean, because you, you, there's a lot of things I want to unpack. So you mentioned repetition, but it's not just repetition for its own sake. It's actually working at something to make it better and listening and getting that feedback in order to improve it over and over that's making that's what makes it practice not mere repetition and doing that because you love it is certainly important but there's also this performative aspect to it right so you're on the one hand you're taking what the composer's written these notes on a page much like you might take the i might take the words of a contract you might take the you know the, the box of documents for your discovery and the evidence for your case but you're trying to present it and interpret it in a particular way and give it a voice that has that kind of a narrative arc to it, whether you're performing you know, a, a classical piano piece or a piece of jazz or a pop song, or if you're in a courtroom or in front of a jury or in front of a judge you're, or in front of your client giving advice, there's that interpretive performative aspect to it that I suspect is also something that, that makes it enjoyable. Absolutely. For me, with respect to music, the point is to share it. I am moved by the music that I listen to and that I perform. So if we take as an example, a Schubert impromptu, I love Schubert, I love his impromptus. If I'm playing that impromptu, primarily I am playing it for myself because I enjoy it so much. But I also love just as much for others to hear it and to appreciate it and to share it. And that's sort of where the performance comes in. Of course, you're trying to do the same thing in the law as a trial lawyer. You are preparing in a room, reading through the record, trying to understand the people that you're dealing with so that you can, in one important moment, persuade someone else 
of a specific point of view. And that kind of intense preparation for the one moment, I think, is one of the ways in which I see sort of parallels between music and law. When you're in the courtroom, we prepare through demonstratives, through the way that we're presenting ourselves, through where we stand and position ourselves in the courtroom. We will go to the courtroom and consider that to be a stage. We will want to know where the judge is, where the jury is, where the opposing counsel is. And all of those factors will influence the way that we present things because ultimately we are trying to get to a particular result for our client. The way you present yourself in the courtroom and everything that you do with it as a stage and the way you talk and the cadence with which you talk and the back and forth with the judge allows you to build all of that credibility together. So it is definitely a performance, whether it's subconscious or conscious. For me, it is, it's always conscious. Yeah. And it's not just a performance, as you mentioned, to, to influence or to persuade, but you're, you're actually trying to have an emotional effect, right? I mean, a performance, whether it's music or, or in a courtroom or in a, you know, at a conference room, you know, negotiating table, you're trying to bring to bear all of that complex information, all of those symbols, all of that music notes or text, whatever it might be, in order to evoke a behavioral reaction, right? People will do something because of it. And ideally, they'll feel good about it. Now, in a music performance, you may have other emotions you want to get, sadness or whatever it might be. But, but certainly in that legal context, you're, you are, just as when you're performing music, you're trying to drive a certain behavioral and emotional response that will give impact to that performance and make it have meaning. That's exactly right. If you're talking to a jury, the jury, generally speaking, wants to do the right thing. So part of your job is to take the structure that is sort of the intellectual part of it. There's law and there are facts that may or may not be disputed, but there is a legal structure and you have to work within that legal structure and get people to believe ultimately that ruling in your favor is not just what sounds right based on the law, but it also feels right. That's a matter of a lot of different things coming together, but you have to appeal to people's minds, but also you have to appeal to their hearts as well. I see a lot of parallels in, in music as well. In music, you've got in any given piece, you've got a structure. I was classically trained as a pianist, so I started off with classical music, and I love classical music. And classical music is very organized, very structured, and yet some pieces can move you in ways that are almost unexpected. And so you have this structure that is well-established that sort of appeals to your musical mind, if you will, but it then carries you emotionally to a certain place. What's beautiful about that is that it might carry different people to different places, but it still carries you there almost inevitably, as if you don't have any other choice. And I think that that's what we strive for as trial lawyers as well. It is sort of the basic concept of trying to, rather than tell the judge the conclusion, to allow the judge to reach his or her conclusion, but that seems inevitable based on the way that you have presented the facts. And so I, I hope that I'll get a chance to hear a little bit about the parallels that you see as well between the kind of work you do on a transaction and the kind of things you do when you're practicing or playing the piano. For me, I grew up trained as a classical pianist, but 
today probably play more jazz and my own compositions. And one of the things I've found is that the role of improvisation is is different. And I think when I connect that to practicing law, you, there is a certain structure. You know, John Coltrane always had his book of Nicholas Sonimsky's theories about chords and modes. You have these sort of this crossover where the the theoretical underpinnings of pitch and harmony and rhythm and, and structure that go into a piece and that go into playing it are also there when you're improvising. You're certainly improvising around something. I play jazz for a very good reason. It's not just that I like it. It's that if I mess up, it's less apparent. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas most classical music, even avant-garde classical music, there has to be a little more authentic recognition of the composer's intent. And as things become more canonical, as they're further in the past, whether it's Beethoven or Bach, you know, there's certain theories of performance where you're really not allowed to improvise the way they would have when that was new. So in practicing law, same kind of a thing. You go into a room, go into a negotiation. Everyone's you know, with the clients and the advisors. You've thoroughly thought through what you want. You've tried to address what you think the other side wants. You try to reach common ground, but there will be other things that happen. New information comes out, emotional or interpersonal relationships that happen in a negotiation. Conflicts perhaps within an institution or organization as to decision makers and what they think is most important in priorities. And all sides have to be nimble and adjust. And that's much more like the single most interesting aspect to me of ensemble playing, which is that you're not just speaking or singing or performing or playing. Mostly you're listening to everybody else. Mostly you're trying to hear what they're doing and you're trying to blend in and make it sound more cohesive so that it really exceeds the sum of each musician or each lawyer, or each advisor, or each client, each person in that, in that space. That's a great point about kind of collaboration that music also provides. And that really is a big part of what we do as lawyers as well. In addition to playing the piano, I was also the director of various choirs growing up. I sit on the board of the LA Master Chorale right now. I happen to love choral music. And as trial lawyers, of course, I, I talk about some of the things that we do with respect to uh, the cadence of the way that we speak or the rhetoric that we use and thinking about that particular performance. But you get to trial and you get to that point as part of a team. And it's that kind of collaboration um, is also super important. When when you're accompanying someone who's singing as a pianist, the primary thing is to follow the person who is singing. That's really what's going on. You're not there to do something yourself. You're there to support and to provide the context and, and really allow them to take the lead. Or if you are playing in a band, and even if you're just spending time jamming, uh, that kind of connection and trying to be able to play off of each other and being willing to go in a new direction, understanding that you're still playing the same song, you still have the same basic chord structures. It's not only fascinating, but it's a lot of fun. And I think, frankly, it uh, reflects, it reflects life, really. One of the things I find is that people sometimes try to isolate the law as being that different than the rest of life. It really isn't. It's just trying to deal with people, understanding them, persuading them, identifying their problems, figuring out their dreams and hopes, either putting them together and making it happen for them in the things that you do, or helping them when something like that has fallen apart, or their expectations are not what they are not met, which is sort of what it is that I do. And music also is a lot like life in that in that regard right and so there are lots of parallels uh, 
because they're just different aspects of trying to speak to human nature and the human condition and working together and being able to connect in that way is critical to, to making things happen. Whether you're working together as musicians or whether you're working together as lawyers to serve your clients. Yeah. You know, I find when you look at interpersonal relations as they're expressed this way, I think there's another element to it for me, at least, which is trust, right? So when you're in an ensemble playing, you trust those other musicians. When you're performing in front of an audience, you're kind of trusting that audience to be, be willing to try to go with you wherever you're, you're trying to take them. And I think in law practice, it's the same thing. A lawyer who can't earn their client's trust will not have very many clients and shouldn't. <laughs> and I think that's, that's true, not just of in a transactional practice, it's also true of the, of the other sides to a transaction, because at the end of the day, we're trying to reach common ground, not persuade a third party like a judge or a jury or an arbitrator. We have to persuade each other that this is something worth doing. And that requires building trust as well, almost as if you don't sign the contract until you've reached that level of trust because the negotiations were a trust-building exercise, not because they were there to decide what the rules should be. Right. No, that's a, that's a fantastic point. It's absolutely true. So what are you playing now? I'm actually working on, when I have the time to practice, I should acknowledge, I'm trying to work on a few Schubert impromptus, which are ones that I like and I find to be um, quite accessible. And so that is, that's what I'm working on right now. My favorite composers are Rachmaninoff and Schubert. Rachmaninoff allows you to sort of keep your technique going a little bit, but requires a little bit more practice. And Schubert is just so lyrical and moving and deep that I really enjoy his works. Would you be willing to share a piece that you're working on or playing right now? Well, I would love to. Thank you for asking. What, what would you like to play? <laughs> well, I'd like to play one of my favorite pieces, which is uh, by Sergei Rachmaninoff. It's a prelude in C-sharp minor. Um, and I've been playing this piece for a long, long time ever since I was about 15 years old. That's perfect. Actually, you know, we have that in common then too, because you're in LA, I'm in LA, and Rachmaninoff at the end of his life lived in LA. A house over on Elm in Beverly Hills. That's where he passed away in uh, 1943. Is that right? I did not know that. All right, well, let's hear it. That was beautiful. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Thank you. There's a funny story about Rachmaninoff. He, when he lived in LA, 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, people picture this stodgy kind of old guy. That's really not who he was. Mm-hmm. He used to cut his cigarettes into little pieces and always be smoking like <laughs> on the butt of a cigarette. And he loved cars uh, and he loved speeding. He would get speeding tickets all the time. He, he had a Cadillac. He had a new car every year and he'd drive his Cadillac all over Los Angeles, like getting tickets. Just Here's my question for you, Alan, is how do you know all this stuff? <laughs> well, so when I was in college, uh, I was uh, the host of an afternoon classical music radio show oh. on our college radio station. So the head of the station, a uh, guy named David Hurwitz, he was the real knowledgeable. I mean, every performance, every performer, you know, which versions of which pieces, uh, just so being around him like a sponge was a great way to learn Oh, that's uh, great. some of the stories. That's great. Would you like to play a piece? I'd love to hear you play. Uh, sure. Uh, why don't I play a piece by Edvard Grieg uh, that he wrote, as it turns out, uh, about the same time as Rachmaninoff wrote that prelude. Uh, this is a, a nocturne from Grieg's Lyric Pieces, Book 5. That was fantastic, Alan. Thank you. Yeah, it's funny. I, whenever I play that Grieg, I'm always amazed. Uh, you know, it's a classical piece. Like a lot of the romantic repertoire at the end of the 19th century, he was really ahead of his time. Those descending uh, sevenths and that 13th chord passing tone, it's very much like jazz. He's got those jazz harmonies going. Actually, I could even play like a little jazzy version of that last part, and, and you could really kind of see how that, how that fits together. Oh, that's great. Please. fantastic yeah it's, i love the i love what you did with that yeah it's, it's, it's kind of amazing how how people think that you know baroque music classical music romantic music contemporary music 
you know, jazz standards, whatever it might be that they're all different, but they're really, they have more in common than I think people realize. And not just, you know, in the West, but I mean globally. So of all the periods that you play, uh, you know, maybe we'll play some more at the end of the of the episode on um, some Baroque music, but uh, we've talked about classical and r romantic, the romantic period within classical in particular, uh, and your favorite composers. You mentioned Rachmaninoff and, and Schubert. Uh, I'm sure Chopin uh, means a lot. Absolutely. That's my, it's my favorite period. Um, I love the way that they approach the music, the feeling the movement, the passion in it, it's, um, it's fantastic. Yeah. So you're a romantic. I am a romantic. I love the, the big pieces. I love the lyrical pieces and I feel like it sort of, it fits my particular talents as well. You sort of determine what it is that works best for you when you're playing the piano, whether it's your technique or your touch or something else of that sort. And I sort of felt that those particular composers worked best with the kinds of things that I, I did best as well. And sort of the way that I grew up and how I think about the things that I do. I spent a lot of time growing up as a musician, not just playing classical music, but also growing up in church where they needed to be able to have someone to play for the choir. And but one of the things I, I thought was interesting, particularly going, growing up in church, is the concept of the pastor and the pianist. So oftentimes I would be on the piano. And so there would be about five to 10 minutes of the oratory being complemented by the music in the way that we sort of talked about a little bit before. Uh, and I think that I learned a little bit about how oratory is in fact musical. It has that same kind of structure. Your tonality, your cadence, the way that you, you the way that you present things, the way that you phrase things, and having that same structure, but making it emotional and being able to appeal both to the heart and to the mind. I then applied that when I went to high school. I went to the Boston Latin School in Boston where I grew up. There was something there called public declamation. And I don't know if you're familiar with public declamation, but in essence, it it's a competition where individuals come up and they will generally recite a soliloquy, typically and traditionally from a Shakespearean play or from a Greek tragedy. Because from my perspective, I think what happens is that when you open your mouth and you begin to speak, you are trying to lay out a canvas, right? You have, you need to set a tone in the way that you talk with your tonality, et cetera. I think it might be, I would assume the same with respect to the deal and the kind of trust that you're talking about. If you start speaking with a tone that's too aggressive or a position that doesn't really, that seems extreme, then whatever trust you hoped to engender from a judge or a jury has really gone out the window. I would assume that if you go into a deal and don't have some basic sense of professionalism, then trying to get to that sense of trust, no matter how hard you're negotiating, is also very difficult. And so I always felt that having a sense of thinking about what I do as a lawyer, as artistic, as an art, just as much as a science, and thinking about it emotionally allowed me to be able to use the skills that I have and what works best for me to be able to serve my clients. We're not in trial every day. We spend a lot of our time dealing with our colleagues, dealing with our 
whether they're partners or associates, dealing with our clients, dealing with co-counsel, dealing with witnesses. Um, each of those interactions is similar in the sense that you're dealing with other human beings, you're dealing with interpersonal reactions. And I think to the extent that you approach things in the same way and try to make people feel comfortable and help them to feel that they can trust you and feel that they will like you and feel that you're not just trying to get something out of them, but you are in a common enterprise to reach a common goal and one that has value and that ends up feeling right, you're going to be more successful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that idea of, of doing something with depth and value and integrity to, in order to build collaboration, I mean, ideally, that's what we do as human beings. And we bring, we bring that to law as well, I, I would hope. You know, hearing you talk about Boston Latin, I'm reminded of another alum from Boston Latin, uh, Leonard Bernstein. Yes. And he grew up uh, hearing, you know, in the synagogue, the Friday or Saturday services and the liturgy and the songs and the sermons from the rabbis and said that was a major influence, of course, into how he then approached music, not just in the, in the pacing and the, and the, and the harmonies and, and so forth, but also in the idea that it should have depth. It should have, it should reflect human dignity. Yes. And it can be fun. It can be sad. It can, but at the end of the day, it has to reflect that, that kind of common spark of divinity that you should see in each other person you're dealing with, regardless of who they are or whether you agree with them. That's great. That's so great to hear. I love Leonard Bernstein and I did not know that, but I'm not surprised because his, his work uh, had so much depth. And so that's fantastic. Uh, Alex, this is a, a thoroughly fascinating conversation. I want to end, if I can, though, this by one question uh, about how you came to this. Because I think, you know, our parents quite often can be hugely important factors in the choices we make, the things we're exposed to. Uh, and I'm sure uh, that your parents had something to do with your choice of music as well as academic success. Uh, that is very true. And I have to say, Fundamentally, I was, I've been lucky. My mom is uh, someone who had taken piano lessons when she was growing up and she decided to stop. And she regretted it so much that she determined that her kids would play the piano. And so, you know, my parents are immigrants from Haiti and my grandfather was able to sort of donate a piano to us. And then he ended up paying for piano lessons for me to take. Uh, I had an older cousin uh, who's three years older than me. And my grandfather had a piano and he had a violin and he put us both on the instruments and my arms were a little too short for the violin. And therefore I started with the piano lessons and that's how I started taking piano lessons because she and my dad had a love of music. And my father back in Haiti, he did a lot of plays and uh, would direct a lot of plays. He was an educator. And so I got a lot of that sense from them, but they are the ones who really started me on this journey. When they started me on the journey, I think that they anticipated that this is the kind of thing that was important as part of one's overall education. That was their view. And so they thought it was necessary and forced it. And then when I fell in love with it, which happened fairly early on, I ultimately uh, told them when they asked, 
they asked me, you know, what would you like to be when you grow up? And I said, well, I'd like to be a classical pianist. And they said, no, 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 no. Where, where, what we mean is what would you like to be when you grow up? You know, would you like to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer? Um, and I also understand and appreciate that. But the gift, the gift that they gave me is one that I could never repay in any way. Uh, I think to this day, of course, I am able to play for people when I come home or if I'm at church or if my mom would come here. And that's the beautiful thing about music is that in sharing it, you provide a gift to people. And so it's an opportunity for me to be able to give back uh, in that in that particular way as well. And so that's really how I got started on this. And I'm super grateful that my parents were able to get me on this journey and allow me to find this beautiful thing that I can connect with that helps me in my professional life. It provides comfort, not just to me, but to others. And it's been, it's been a fantastic journey that will stay with me uh, for the rest of my life. That's such a beautiful sentiment. I want to let it just sit there for a second. Let's finish with a little more playing at the piano, if that's okay with you. That's great. Is there a, another composer you'd like to share? Well, I'd love to share some Johann Sebastian Bach. That would be great. I got to tell you, Bach, for me, at the end of a day, I don't care what kind of a crazy day it's been, playing Bach just erases all of my stress. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I can imagine. He's, he's an incredible genius, uh, lyrical and passionate, uh, structured. His music is, is layered, and it's amazing. Is there a piece that has special significance for you? There is. This is a prelude from the Well-Tempered Clavier by Bach. And this was a piece that I played and recorded for my wife to walk down the aisle. I love this piece and I'd love to share it with you. Yeah, let's hear it. Wow, I bet she really enjoyed hearing that at your wedding. She did. She did. It was um, it was beautiful. Yeah, that is. There's something about Bach. I mean, I love it when you just can change the way you touch the notes, the way they hold, the way they're released, in just the slightest ways, and a completely different mood or style or, or feel to just even the simplest of lines uh, that he puts together. Absolutely. Do you, do you play Bach? I do, quite a bit. Would you play some? Uh, sure. Uh, in fact, it can kind of to illustrate that there's a um, a toccata in E minor. Toccata is in Italian means to touch. So the way you touch those notes is exactly what you're trying to show off when you play a toccata. 
Uh, sometimes they're fast and elaborate. Sometimes they're 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 simpler. Um, here's a kind of a short, simple introduction uh, to his E minor toccata. Alex, this has been a terrific, really, really a meaningful conversation. I appreciate you taking the time. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me, Alan. So to take us out, why don't we listen to a little bit of you playing for Robert Schumann's Kinderzähnen, or childhood scenes in honor of your parents. Thank you for joining us for another Millbank Conversation. We trust you find our expertise and insights compelling. Learn more at millbank.com.